Good afternoon, everyone. This is the Politics Classroom on UIC Radio, where music and culture ignite. There is so much going on in the news that we will cover some of that today, but we're also going to take a step back and look at threats to democracy, both in the United States and around the world. I have two political science graduate students joining me here in the classroom today, and I can't wait to hear from them. So let's get started in the politics classroom on UIC Radio, where music and culture ignite. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in today to the Politics Classroom on UIC Radio, streaming live for 20 years at radio.uic.edu. It is Tuesday, February the 18th, 2020, and I'm here in the classroom with two political science graduate students. First, we have Semi Patan, who is studies comparative politics and urban politics. Why don't you tell, say hi and tell everybody what it is that you study? Um, yes, uh, comparative politics and urban politics, particularly I study uh, legislative institutions in, um, you know, authoritarian or semi-authoritarian settings. Interesting. All right. Well, welcome, Semi, to the classroom. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. And the second graduate student who pulled himself away from his sickbed in order to fall under the pressure of his supervisor, sorry about that, is Keith Simons, who is also studying comparative and urban. Why don't you say hi and tell everybody what you study? Hello. Uh, I study political parties primarily, mostly in Europe. I'm interested in parties that sort of disrupt the political process that we're accustomed to, especially in advanced democracies, uh, which will include some of the fun people we'll talk about today. Oh, great. Okay. So I am glad to have these guys on the show because we've been talking so much about American politics that it's driven me a little bit crazy. So I thought today we would have a ridiculously long lead in to American politics by way of Turkey. So there are a bunch of phrases that I've started to hear a lot more. Electoral authoritarianism, competitive authoritarianism, illiberal democracy. Is there a difference among these things? So first, let's talk about, you know, definitions-ish. And then we'll talk about some countries that may be heading in this direction. So competitive authoritarianism, electoral authoritarianism, are these things the same thing? Does it matter? What is it? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely overlaps, but the idea of having, uh, you know, so many of these concepts with different adjectives are not necessarily to just, you know, to come up with uh, or coin new terms, but in the, like, you know, hopes to capture uh, some things that the other, you know, concepts have uh, ignored so far or did a, you know, not a, a great job, maybe, but... Competitive authoritarianism, the whole idea, you know, the reason that they chose uh, this term over, say, a liberal democracy or electoral democracy, 
is that uh, the assumption that these terms have in terms of this heading towards democracy, like this democratization bias. So the reason the authors of the competitive authoritarianism term, the reason that they came out with that is to have a term that does not necessarily have this uh, democratization bias. They do not necessarily assume that these regimes uh, will necessarily uh, turn into democracies in uh, you know some foreseeable future. What they instead suggest is that these regimes in their hybrid nature are pretty stable and they can just continue to be whatever they are in this you know middle ground neither a fully uh, dem- a consolidated democracy or fully closed aut- autocracy or authoritarian regime instead you have a regime that you know has uh, some you know competitive aspects when it comes to uh, opposition politics or uh, elections but still an authoritarian regime because the system favors the ruling government. And all these other terms more or less capture some of these, but you can uh, make a case for or against them. It's, again, you know, a scholarly kind of uh, dispute in terms of how to name uh, these characters. But I would not necessarily suggest that all of them address the same things there are, uh, even though subtle, uh, some differences. Okay. Right. I would also say it seems one of the reasons we're seeing such a proliferation of terms is that a lot of countries are moving, like Hungary is one example, like the how best to describe them isn't the same as it was 10 years ago, and so mm-hmm. people are always hunting for these new terms, and it always sounds interesting when you make up a new term. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also think that it's, as Sammy was saying, like the idea that these are all necessarily transitions or they're this, you know, the end of history inevitability of the system uh, sort of working itself out is certainly in question because uh, Turkey was on its way to be a EU member and was going to yeah. the shining uh, example of democracy. And so as those things change, people sort of search for new terms. And I think that some of the terms are very useful. But like, I think, again, with Hungary, like people use a liberal democracy there quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I think it does fit better there. But it's also a question of like, how long do we call some of these countries even a democracy mm-hmm. once they're taking away all of these rights? Sure. And like, what does that even mean at the end of the day? Well, I did a little bit of research. Wow. You did more than me. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get your hopes up. Okay, so I went all the way back to 1997. Actually, that's when I graduated college. But okay, 1997, to a foreign affairs piece written by, and I can't believe that I am seriously going to say this, Fareed Zakaria. Oh, yeah. The liberal democracies. He is, you know this one? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh. He, is, he is the one who termed, like, you know, coined the term liberal democracy. There you go. The rise of illiberal. Says he didn't do any research. <laughs> <laughs> the rise of illiberal democracy, yes, right. in foreign affairs. And he, he cites a lot of political science literature in yes. here. So I guess I need to take him more seriously. The reason why he calls the, uh, some of these countries illiberal democracies is because he distinguishes between a democracy which involves you know, free and fair elections and constitutional liberalism, which includes rule of law, separation of powers and protection of basic liberties. And so he, he his argument was that in the West, these two things have gone hand in hand, at least in the modern era, mm-hmm. that you do have popular 
selection of the leader, but that leader is operating within a system that actually restrains the government in its actions. And it has, you know, checks and balances so that different parts of the government can constrain it. But that many countries, these two strands, the elections and the rule of law, have become untwined. Mm -hmm. Does that sound relevant today as when he talked about this in 1997? Is I mean, do you think that's fair that a lot of these places that are, I mean, they're called competitive authoritarianism because there are elections, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have those rule of law characteristics that we usually associate with true or consolidated democracies. Right. This coin has gained a lot of traction, you know, back in then even, but uh, particularly right now, uh, since we have seen an increase in these kind of democracies or flawed democracies, liberal democracies, competitive authoritarian yeah, regimes, yeah. particularly in the, you know, Western hemisphere now, so that, uh, you know, scholars have started to pay more attention to, like, you know, how to deal with this problem and get some experience from the ex like practices or examples from the uh, you know non-Western countries. So yeah, the liberal democracy part, he kind of you know talks about this understanding of the Schumpeterian democracy where you just focus on the elections. Are the elections free and fair? Mm -hmm. Right? This should be the minimal understanding of our democracy. And his observation is that even though, in, as you just said, uh, in Western countries, these electoral qualities came with uh, civil uh, liberties as well, it did not necessarily go hand in hand in newly democratized countries. Mm -hmm. Particularly, you know, this, uh, this coin that was gained traction with the third wave of democratization after the collapse of the uh, Soviet Union. You have lots of uh, Eastern European countries that had struggled with uh, achieving this level of civil uh, liberties, even though they have immediately achieved free and fair elections to a certain extent, institutionalizing these kind of values mm -hmm. that are closely associated with the Western uh, political thought. Uh, was not really straightforward in those newly, uh, um, you know, emerged democracies. But I did think it was funny. He was praising Central European countries in this article, and Whoops. Poland and Hungary <laughs> are kind of leading the way in the in the opposite direction. And that was another thing that I was going to ask you guys about, in terms of. A lot of the countries that I would, I mean, you mentioned Turkey was on its way to EU membership, although let's be real, that wasn't going to happen. Right. But it, it seems like a lot of the countries we talk about as being illiberal or competitive authoritarian or whatever are countries that seemed more democratic in both senses, the elections and the civil liberties, and then have backslid to some degree. Is that accurate or are those just the ones that are in the news because backsliding on democracy is a notable thing? Well, but I mean, I think it's I do think it's true. Like Poland's Law and Justice Party, like they are it's like they're going out of their way to make the point that they're backsliding on these things. They're not pretty explicit about it. Uh, but I also think it's something that like even in the U.S. context, some of this stuff gets a little tricky to disentangle because you have the state of Wisconsin, which certainly we would not call anything but a democracy. But they also completely changed the rules when a new governor 
uh, was elected. <laughs> right. So it's like I think they did that in North Carolina. In North too. Carolina did yeah. it too, yeah. even more blatantly, I think actually. But so it's like <laughs> the idea of having stable rules that are going to govern these things is now even in places in the United States taking an absolute backseat to well, we want things to be a certain way. Yeah. Rules are cute. We'll maybe change them back if we get back in power. And so I think that like, and in Poland, like there's the you know the. Catholic Church is very powerful there. It was a big part of fighting against, you know, the communist regime. And they share a lot of views that are very, very conservative and sort of like the argument that like, well, we should have a society where it's pluralist and we allow people who think that abortion is fine and dandy is perfectly fine sounds crazy to some people. And it's like, well, why would we make this a decision? Like, I mean, when they tried to impose... Sounds crazy in the United States to some yeah, people. Indeed. But well, like, <laughs> they tried to impose a complete ban on abortion at a time it had a 7% support in the public. 7%. Mm. And they were still willing to try. Mm -hmm. And so it's like that kind of boldness and just saying, well, like, this is right. It doesn't matter what, you know, these silly systems say or anything like this is something that is uh, very tempting, especially when, like, the specter of something like communism as your thing you're trying to prevent, then... I mean, just as in the U.S. case during the Cold War, anything to stop communism. It doesn't right. matter what those things are. Sure, they're right-wing death squads that are <laughs> killing people, but they're not communists. Right. Come on. So. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. To go back to your original question about, you know... I had an original question. <laughs> Ooh, bold. Initial question. <laughs> <laughs> about, like, what are this backsliding yeah. is the right way to call it. Kind of yes and no, Let's just think way about... to take a stand on that. Right. Okay. Yes. I try to avoid taking a stand. Uh, so <laughs> we may never know. <laughs> like in the case of Turkey, right? Uh, yes, there was a backsliding for sure after uh, you know the gains in terms of uh, democratization under the AKP government when they first came to power. Uh, you know the civilian control of uh, military. Uh, you know civilianization of uh, judicial processes and stuff like that. EU membership. Uh, you know it's at least a pursuit of EU membership and related. Well, uh, they started a session negotiations, yeah. which hadn't and, happened in what the thirty years yeah, before right. that. So <laughs> right, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know the, the conditionalities that came up, that, like came with it. Of course, you know have helped democratize country, but even the starting point in terms of Turkey's level of democracy wasn't uh, like the best, right? You know, okay. It was already a flawed democracy. It had lots of things to be fixed. And we got to ask the question whether or not when Erdogan and his regime, and even like uh, the governments before him, did they pass laws or amend constitutions, which were like, you know, uh, really needed to assure these uh, demo democratic gains would be a permanent thing, mm -hmm. right? Would they be institutionalized? Did uh, the Erdogan regime, did the AKP regime in Turkey, the AKP administration, did they pass a law to make a transition of power as seamless as possible, mm -hmm. right? Did they make sure cultural rights for Kurds, uh, you know, were permanent enough, right? Or like uh, as... Slip uh, their minds. Yeah, broad enough <laughs> to, you know consider Turkey as this, you know, perfect, uh, I mean, maybe there's not a perfect democracy, but like, you know, that has achieved this uh, civil liberty. So that was never the case. So in that sense, uh, backsliding, if it, if it means like backsliding from a perfect democracy with all, all these civil, uh, civic liberties, ensured, that's not the case, right? Yeah. That's a myth. But backsliding from uh, very, was, that aspiration yes, as yes well. yeah. uh, that was the case. And about like you know my comment about how and yours actually how this you know free and fair elections 
are you know coupled with uh, civil liberties invested in societies, uh, we assume that these uh, values were accepted mm. by the vast majority of the population. Right, democracy is the only game in town. We assume that this was given. But in many of the cases now in the U.S., in U.K. or other like you know uh, European countries, we see that there is a sizable uh, portion of society that did not really uh, you know embrace these values, right. right? So I think that part is really difficult to come to terms with, yeah. right? Well, um, I I want to talk about tyranny of the majority in a in a minute, but um, I do want to do want to quote uh, part of a paragraph from this 1997 Fareed Zakaria article in Foreign Affairs because I. As as soon as I read it, it just I started to giggle. Okay, so he's writing this in 1997. Right. Boris Yeltsin is still the president of Russia. Oh, so. Boris. Yeah, here we go. In 1993, Boris Yeltsin famously and literally attacked the Russian parliament, prompted by parliament's own unconstitutional acts. He then suspended the constitutional court, dismantled the system of local governments, and fired several provincial governors. From the war in Chechnya to his economic programs, Yeltsin has displayed a routine lack of concern for constitutional procedures and limits. He may well be a liberal Democrat at heart, but Yeltsin's actions have created a Russian super presidency. Here's the line that makes me laugh. We can only hope his successor will not abuse it. (laughs) His successor Uh, being Vladimir Putin. (laughs) Well, Medvedev was in there for a while, too. He also abused it. But only at Putin's discretion, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, that but made me laugh. Anyhow. His hope is granted now. Nobody's <laughs> abusing that. He, you know, he could always calm down in his older age. <laughs> Who, Putin? Yeah, sure. Mm. I saw him, uh, you know, he always plays hockey to show how masculine he is. Oh, really? There's he this does funny a lot shot. of things to show that. He's, yeah, it's all he does. But he's sitting on the sideline drinking tea out of this fancy tea set. It was just so funny. <laughs> was, his, was his pinky finger out? No, but his he was sitting next to another important politician who was bald and combing his hair. <laughs> like, it was pathetic, <laughs> but very masculine. Mm, mm. I'm convinced. <laughs> So, yeah, let's talk about the tyranny of the majority. This is a phrase from de Tocqueville, correct? That sounds right. We'll just say it is. He said lots of things. It's a long book. (laughs) (laughs) Which I've actually never read. Political theory was not my strong suit in graduate school, for sure. You know, I, I found this interesting when the Arab Spring started in, gosh, it's been so long now, December 2010 into 2011. I was at the University of Missouri, and the journalism school is basically runs the NBC affiliate in central Missouri. And so a lot of student journalists would come and ask questions. So I had a student who came to talk to me about what was going on. And I, you know, I loved this, that the the angle of the story was, how will this affect oil prices? Important question. and I was like, um, Egypt's not a oil exporter. <laughs> like, it's not. Okay. But anyhow, so this, this young reporter knew nothing, nothing about the Middle East. And so I basically gave her a 45-minute tutorial, all of which she incorporated into her report. And I got a two-second soundbite at the very end. I was not happy about that. <laughs> but, but, you know, one of the things that I brought up to her and I thought about many times since is that elections mean that who the majority of people want to run a country runs the country or at least a plurality 
And, you know, at the time, half of Egyptians wanted to either scrap or substantially renegotiate the Camp David Accord, which brought peace between Israel and Egypt. And so that would not have been in the, the foreign policy interests of the United States. And so she was, she was, I guess she was asking, like, why the Obama administration didn't just, like, jump up and down in pleasure that this was happening. And so I had to explain that. But also, you know, people talk about Myanmar and, you know, how is it possible that no one is doing anything about the Rohingyas? And it's like, well, that the majority of the population doesn't consider these folks to be citizens, citizens. of the country. Yeah. 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 And so... I think people always think, oh, democracy is so great. But if what the people want <laughs> is curtailing the rights of others, et cetera, you know, that can be really dangerous. And I think you were starting to go down that path, uh, Semi, when you were talking about something you were just talking about. Right. Uh, <laughs> He's always trying to curtail people's rights. It's exhausting. Yeah, as a Turkish person, that's what I do usually. But yeah. You know, it's without those values, without uh, securing the, you know, basic rights of minority or like, you know, individuals. And if you just focus on whether or not the elections are uh, free and fair, then you're reducing democracy is a set of institutions how through which uh, people decide who is going to make the uh, public decisions on behalf of them. And uh, this that's pretty much it. Like you know, the offices. How will they, uh, you know, select the people uh, that will uh, assume public offices? And if that was it, you know, democracy wouldn't necessarily be any better than any other. Yeah, yeah right. it, 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 as long as you have an efficient system of selecting people to do those jobs, then, you know... You could have a more enlightened monarchy than a democracy yeah, exactly. if the people want to just... Singapore know. functions well. It doesn't have a democracy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, like, I think whenever we talk about a democracy, it's always, uh, you know, the things that we imagine in our, like, you know, minds, it's always more than, you know, being able to select a person free and fairly, Right. It uh, nobody would assume, oh, like, you know, this person just randomly, um, you know, doing whatever he wants, put people in prison or just like, you know, seize their property. Um, nobody would assume that. So in that sense, yeah, like, you know, it is, I think, uh, and most of the political science literature would agree with that, uh, that, you know, considering democracy is just a way as a, just a way of selecting people for the public offices is. Uh, you know, won't do justice. Right. right. I mean, I think it's all, what is the purpose of democracy is not a question like we are sort of taught to think about specifically. It's sort of like we are a democracy. Democracy's good. There you go. Uh, but, yeah, right. Like, we did it. Good job. Uh, but it's sort of like, I mean, it always amazed me like during the cold war when the soviets would like critique us they'd be like oh yes well look at the way you treat uh, african americans sure. in your country and we'd say how dare you bring that up uh but it's like the sort of like we were talking about before i do think like the you sort of hope that what people are talking about when they say they support democracy is like this notion that you support you know uh, equal rights and trying to uh, improve mm -hmm. living conditions for everybody through joint decision making 
like Rousseau, wanted us to think about uh, the general will as opposed to the will of all. Love that guy. Uh, though he was lunatic. Uh, but it's also like the, I think that so it's... So he fits right in. Oh, yeah, exactly. He, he, got, he got it. Uh, but, you know, the... I just think about it all the time, like in Chicago, uh, like our politics, obviously corruption free, like really <laughs> wonderful, uh, no problems there. Uh, but like there's, it's the, I mean, I, one of my critiques of the U- U.S. system or, and the British system, like the first past the post yeah. is idiotic and right. obviously has a lot of- Can you these, explain just real well, quick right, what so that is? Right, so in uh, the U.K. and uh, the United States- uh, to win, you just have to get a plurality of votes. And so if I win by 25% to your 23%, I win the entire district. It's my district. And this leads into the United States example. Uh, one party can literally get millions of more votes than the other party and still lose uh, the uh, Congress. Uh, in the United Kingdom, this has some of the or same. Or the presidency. Or the, well, the presidency, <laughs> the electoral college, right? That's a whole other story. Uh, but like these sorts of things, like at least in a parliamentary system, by having to form some coalitions, like you ostensibly have to bring people in and make some kind of compromises, although we know this obviously has problems as well. Israel being one of my favorite examples where you have to deal with some really nutty political parties sure. in order to make it through. Uh, but at least I think that that... In the United States, like we're so used to that being the way it's done that it's like when people are talking about um, accomplishing something through politics, it is kind of about imposing your will. And it's not about like the process. It's not about any of that kind of stuff. And I think that there's a whole bunch of reasons for that uh, for sure. But I also don't know how you sort of pull back from that uh, because, again, like we have you know, in all the states we have here, we have some states. Uh, that are overwhelmingly Democrat, overwhelmingly Republican. And so if you're living in that state, you have no say in what's going on if right. you're a member of the other party. And that's something you just have to deal with. And it's like, if you're told this is what democracy means, it's like, well, democracy is not so great. No. Like, I don't get any of the things I want. Uh, all the policies I think are stupid. And it's really unfortunate. But uh, the kind of like... Uh, systemic changes that are required, of course, are all being blocked by the system uh, as it uh, currently exists. And I don't know that, like, Tocqueville was very excited about, like, our, you know, huge number of newspapers and civil society, both of which are completely gone. You know, we have no newspapers. There's, like, three of them now. Uh, All owned by large corporations. All owned by a few guys, uh, uh, like uh, Mexican billionaires. Uh, But it's, like, and, I mean, I think it's the... The, the newspaper that broke a lot of the Jeffrey Epstein stories, the company that owns them just went bankrupt. And so Jeffrey Epstein, this horrible, horrible monster, gets found out by local reporting, and that might disappear. And so it's like we can't... Is for- that in Florida? That is in yeah. Florida. The okay. report, Julie Brown, I think is her name, mm-hmm. uh, the journalist. But this is like really important public interest journalism, really, really um, uh, great stuff. And as that withers, as does civil society, and we're left just with these sort of institutions, mm-hmm. then I kind of it's kind of obvious that you would get here. Tocqueville had this figured out quite a long time ago, and we seem to have forgotten. It was a really long book. It is super long, and he came here actually to study the prison system, but he got distracted and decided- By civil society. He's like, oh man, look at these people hanging out. Glad he did. Voluntary associations, (laughs) I love it. Let's take a quick break here. I am Professor Floros, I'm in the classroom with Sami Patan and Keith Simons, and we are talking about democracy and its discontents. How about that for a show episode? Okay, so we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about how some of these- leaders have changed the rules in their country to accommodate their non-large conception of democratic behavior. All right. So you're listening to The Politics Classroom on UIC Radio, where music and culture ignite.
Welcome back to the Politics Classroom on UIC Radio, streaming live for 20 years at radio.uic.edu. I'm Professor Floros, and you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Floros. Please send me a tweet if there are any topics that you would like me to cover in future discussions with my colleagues, students, and other random people that I might bring into the studio. I am joined in the classroom today by two UIC political science graduate students, Semi Patan and Keith Simons. Gentlemen, thank you again for coming into the classroom with me today. Our pleasure. Yeah. Before the break, we kind of set a little bit of a theoretical foundation on, you know, democracy and institutions versus elections, et cetera, et cetera. And now I want to get down to the brass tacks. I want to talk about actual examples. So, Keith, why don't you start us off in Eastern Europe? These are countries that escaped from being behind the Iron Curtain, uh, imposed communist, re- communist regimes imposed upon them. When the Soviet Union fell, they had a chance to do something else. And the initial inclination was, let's be democratic. How'd that go? Really great for a very short amount of time. Um, <laughs> So my uh, one of the quintessential example is Hungary, uh, the ruling Fidesz party headed by Viktor Orban. Uh, he is starts this party as a it's a college student party. Wants really? To, it, it started as a college student party huh. about anti-communism. Oh yeah. Uh, they, oh right, back in the day. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's, they've been around forever. They've sure, gotten okay. much, much worse. Uh, but <laughs> uh, they they originally uh, governed uh, for several years before going out of government and they came back in and since then he sort of made it his mission to make Hungary look as bad as possible on the international scene uh, including uh, one of the biggest uh, boogeymen of a lot of the political right uh, globally and in the United States is George Soros who is himself Hungarian (laughs) Uh, so he's been involved in Hungarian politics and it is one of the absolute favorite things uh, Viktor Orban's government to do is to complain about the cosmopolitan influences on their politics and use a lot of coded language that's very anti-Semitic and to specifically call out sources influence. Primarily, uh, they try to uh, organize their politics around trying to protect Hungarian sovereignty from evil institutions like the European Union. That they joined. That they joined and that has kept peace in Europe for a few decades, but what's that worth? Um, not much. Not, not yeah. I mean, come on. How bad are world wars really? Um, <laughs> and then one of the things that's really striking is the people he points to as the problems that exist in society. He loves to pick on the Roma uh, minority Why group. does everybody pick on the Roma? Because it's... It, literally, we, Tucker Carlson on Fox News talks about Roma possibly coming to America. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's totally ludicrous, but it's this perfect... They're exotic, they're foreign, they don't belong, and so it's this... I mean, they literally have no impact almost anywhere, especially nationally. Uh, we're and discriminated about, against horribly Historically forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody so, cares. Like, they don't have that political platform, yes. right? You know, uh, they But don't somehow they're going to come and destroy Europe? Yeah, for some reason. By yeah, living they, in, like, caravans on It's the an side easy the target, yeah. you know, and it get, garners a lot of support for some reason for a, uh, an average voter. And it's this, it's this in Hungary, it's, it's them, and it's sort of, he uses, again, this coded language that isn't so subtle, where he talks about uh, people who don't work for a living, people who only use financial markets to make their wealth, uh, and who don't uh, really contribute to society. <laughs> okay, wait, wait, wait. So he's he's mad at both the super rich people who yes. don't, who, like, play the markets, 
and people who refuse to play the markets. Exactly. Uh. I mean, it's it's it, the consistency is really amazing because then obviously uh, one of the things that strengthened his hand in terms of his political grip uh, was the refugee crisis. Okay. Uh, because of the Syrian refugee crisis, which was sort of a perfect example for him to say, "Look, Angela Merkel and all these crazy uh, Europeans over in Brussels want us to have all these uh, Syrian Muslims come into our country," mm. and he says, "And I refuse to allow this because uh, they don't belong here. They don't understand our culture." They will destroy our sovereignty and all this stuff. And he literally like built barricades to prevent people from coming into the country. Uh, but it's been systematically challenging, again, while still being a full member of the EU, challenging the EU says you absolutely have to do X and he just won't do it. And it's this real tough uh, hand that the EU's been handed because of obviously Brexit and not wanting sure. any other countries to leave. Like, how do but you. But Hungary leaving would not hardly be. Hardly the same. Yes. yes. Right. But at the same time, it's sort of like a classic domino effect right. idea where yeah. if two countries leave then Greece has made threats some, the right go. yeah I mean, so they, <laughs> I mean like right, really yeah. no, nobody, if it's right. just France and Germany then, then that's still okay right. they, the go economy back to the original six right but so it's it's this thing where <laughs> or not Italy the EU is in a very difficult position because how do you prevent sure. when a country is ceasing to be as democratic ceasing to be as liberal what do you do without just pushing them away and i don't think they found a really great answer yet but as like the syrian refugee crisis has become uh less acute and less of a daily uh, issue some of that has gone away uh but uh, it's continuing as uh orban like his popularity and one of the things that's really kind of striking is he's very very conservative in almost every respect you know anti-communism being the foundational party uh, stance, uh, but he's also now all about social welfare programs for certain parts of the population. Like, you can make big bank in Poland as well if you just have a lot of children. Like, they're mm. giving away huge tax incentives so that if you're a middle-class family, you can get what in the United States would be considered an insane amount of money to do this. And it's something that, I forget the author who made this point. Is but that everybody who has lots of children? No, it, you have okay. to meet certain standards, and yeah, if you come... Not everyone. It's right. I mean, so like, if there are Muslims and they have a lot of children, <laughs> no, like, that's, that's like quite the opposite. Cool. Right, the opposite. Yeah, but okay. it's like, as somebody I, again, I forget the author's name, but he pointed out that it's it's social welfare that further exacerbates inequality, and that's precisely what they're pushing. Okay. And it's precisely for this like idealized version of like, what are Hungarians? They're middle class people with like a whole bunch of kids who just want to talk about how great Hungary is all day, and that's the sort of notion of the state uh, that he wants to promote and that he is promoting. Okay, and so what has he done and what have the leaders of Poland done I mean so they've changed a lot of rules they've stacked the judiciary you can yeah. go you can go on and on in just a second but they've done this all relatively constitutionally right yes well this is one of the like again Poland's law and justice party they it's not only that they're using like the rules to their advantage while they change them, but they w even are going so far as like there was a museum being built about World War II. Okay. And they completely changed the outlook of the museum, fired the entire staff because they didn't want it to promote an anti-Polish version of World War II and the uh, decades after. What that meant was literally saying that if you like this is like they passed these laws that now you can't refer to uh, any polish concentration camps if you use that term that's inappropriate there are german concentration camps that just happen to be in poland and so i mean we know that wait were, wait so that's in poland that's in poland oh, yes. okay yes exactly. <laughs> so we're still in hungry i'm like why does hungry this? care no but so uh, the 
and again, it's like using all of electoral rule changes, but it's also like the cultural stuff. They're very, very aggressive about changing the way the culture is promoted within the state, which includes firing uh, civil servants who won't toe the line. Like literally, again, this museum in Poland, they fired the tour guides because the tour guides who wouldn't give the explicitly Poland single-handedly essentially saved the world from uh, Hitler uh, version of history uh, were all fired and replaced by people who would spew that line. And so it's something that, I mean, I think in both examples, they understand that electoral rules that protect them, changing their stance. And to me, again, the social welfare is really big because they've taken this issue that was once a left issue and they've embraced it for their constituency Mm -hmm. so that, I mean, it's not sustainable, especially in Poland. The money just isn't there to do it. But by embracing that and then pushing all this cultural stuff, it's sort of like they're making it very, very difficult to imagine how the opposition could ever come into a really strong uh, stance uh, to oppose almost anything that's happening. And, but again, as you said, they are still using the rules for the most part. They're changing them in ways that are deeply unfair, but they're changing them according to the rules that did exist at the time. It's sort of like, as I think we'll get to, but part of this is about like shamelessness. And <laughs> if you have enough shamelessness, you can make these institutional changes. You can challenge norms. It's like, well, no one would do that. That's so obviously terrible. And it's like, well, I just did it. So yeah. what? And once you have that, it's very, very difficult to fight against because it's already happened. And what do you find is most appealing to people that they, I mean, these are, these are popular parties. Well, they're populist parties and therefore popular. (laughs) So can you tell us, can you talk a little bit about both of you about populism and why that's so attractive? Well, I mean, I mean, um, and we only have two hours. (laughs) (laughs) You know, all these policies, we got to first, you know, understand that these uh, parties do not like, uh, you know, appear out of blue, right? They do not appear uh, in a a political uh, vacuum or they don't have any kind of like base. They start off with a uh, pretty solid base to begin with, even though if they like, you know, even though they do not necessarily go ahead and uh, do these, uh, you know, institutional changes uh, to like, you know, uh, make this uh, you know, their country more authoritarian off the bat, their own base, particularly, you know, usually right after uh, severe economic crises or like, you know, governmental crises, these parties usually emerge as an answer to the existing uh, like, you know, consolidated parties, right? You know, they failed us mm. economically, they failed us yeah. politically. So they, uh, you know, in the beginning, emerge as a, uh, you know, this outsiders or like, you know, people who haven't really had their shot yet and like who are politically, uh, you know, maybe uh, less blamable about the, uh, you know, economic or government mm-hmm. crisis, right? That was the case about the AKP. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of people buy into that and like, you know, choose them for something new. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, the ironic thing is, usually, you know, right after economic crisis, uh, the government who pays the price would uh, have already uh, passed necessary laws or, you know, signed agreements with IMF or uh, enforce more uh, economic discipline. But they would 
paid a price. So once these, uh, you know, six, uh, successors, uh, you know, assume office, like, you know, the, these populist parties, they bank on the achievements of the previous government after the economic crisis. Again, that's exactly... So they don't walk away from, like, the IMF agreements? They Not just, necessarily, They can just no. blame everything. Like, yeah. so, okay, the economy's better now because of what the previous administration did. Exactly. And the previous... But like, they sucked. In the case of <laughs> Turkey, uh, Erdogan uh, and his party came to power right after a severe economic crisis in 2001. And the government back then signed an agreement with IMF, got a loan, passed, like, you know, you know, enforced this uh, economic, uh, you know, budgetary discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and It's also you know, known as austerity. It, it wasn't <laughs> that scared. harsh uh, oh, okay. in the case of Turkey. Uh, but yes, like, you know, there was definitely austerity measures. And they brought in this economist from World Bank, Kemal Dervish. Uh, so, like, you know, he oversaw all these uh, transition, uh, you know, process. So the economy was kind of like getting better already. It, but, like, you know, you wouldn't see the signs immediately. So that's when mm. the, uh, you know, AKP came in. They just continued on these, uh, you know, reforms. Uh, they, of course, like, you know, uh, kept uh, on going with this, uh, you know, disciplined budget and like you know pass all these reforms so they did well but it wasn't necessarily uh you know their own restructuring right so when you have that solid base and you make a good like you know debut uh you already like you know created your own uh loyal supporters and once you have that kind of control over uh the government and you can maintain like by keep winning elections then you can play on uh, more, you know, emotional feelings of the, you know, voter base. You can just, uh, you know, feel their nationalist sentiments. Like it. But in a lot of these places, right, in Eastern Europe, in Turkey, haven't some of the economic decisions of the populist leadership actually created economic problems for people in the country? Why aren't people saying, like, you suck, we're holding you accountable for this? Again, yes, in the case of Turkey right now, like Turkey is, uh, you know, going through an important, like a bad economic crisis, right? Maybe it's not uh, necessarily as accurate as one imagined or like it wasn't as accurate as in 2001 in terms of economic indicators. But when you look at, uh, you know, unemployment levels, uh, you know, people's purchasing, uh, you know, power and the, you know, reductions in their salaries it's definitely economic crisis and it shows uh but the thing is uh these governments are so good at uh you know framing their positions and not this is not just a skill but they're also so good at capturing uh the you know media uh and by capturing do you mean taking it over and jailing journalists (laughs) who say something different that does help or like in the (laughs) hungarian case literally uh in the case hungarian case you help uh you know the government friendly you know businessman to acquire uh you know media holdings and all these uh you know media companies model own the media yes (laughs) you own it and uh the government helps you right they're Mm. government friendly so they will get public tenders easily they will have access to government uh, resources so once you have that readily available and you do not have reliable opposition mainstream uh you know media uh then all you uh funnel into society is your own views and you can blame as the you know hungarian and turkish government did others you can blame the interest rate lobby for instance erdogan did 
uh, that there is such a thing as an interest rate lobby. Apparently, but obviously, it's very a, powerful. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of his talking points, uh, like you know, during an aftermath of Gezi Park protests, because the economy was not doing well at the time either. Uh, even though he it just created a boogeyman. It, it was a boogeyman. It like you know, and uh, the media just like kept on talking about it, and the pundits would just like you know entertain that idea and just assume it's uh, you know. Uh, truthfulness and say, oh yeah, the interest lobby did this, and all these Western people. It like you know, at some point, the German Lufthansa company was even accused of like you know engaging in some sort of conspiracy theory, for instance, about the Turkey's uh, Istanbul's new airport. Right? They do not want this airport to be open because uh, you know it would uh, have a detrimental effect on Lufthansa's uh, you know own flights or whatever like it would be uh, a lot of competition so now they're like conspiring against the turkish government you know this Classic idea was merkel move <laughs> this idea was entertained uh so like in that sense when you can control if you can control the story right if you can control the media you can do a lot of things and we kind of see that happening here too with donald trump uh you know attacking the news media and only favoring uh you know the media that well, and remember news. when one of Sean, Spice, Sean Spicer, our long time ago now uh, press secretary, I know. That was like 400 years ago. At least. <laughs> uh, but remember, one of the, it might even be his first press conference, he gets asked, because Trump had always been questioning the economic numbers under Obama, saying that's not really the unemployment rate, that's not the jobless rate. And literally day one, Sean was like, well, he believes those numbers now. <laughs> and so, like, literally just saying, these numbers are all false, the economy's actually terrible, now I'm here, They are numbers are true, and the economy is the best it's ever been. And it's like, the under Trump, the economy has done essentially the same as under Obama, right. but he claims it's the best it's ever been, and right. we lived in the doldrums under Obama, and a lot of people accept that. And like, I mean, at the beginning of the Obama administration was not great, but that right. was not Obama's fault, right? I mean, the recession right. started before he. Well, came he didn't into do anything Obama. to stop it as a senator, <laughs> you know, or an Illinois state senator either. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just play the it. Illinois state senate does have a lot, a lot of control of, of the global economy. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Uh, but, like, you know, we should not underestimate the importance of your own individual biases, right? You know, a lot of the things are, you know, this affect politics, right? You you select people, you support people based on your own emotional yeah. feelings. Mm. Uh, and in many of, like, like, particularly in times of polarization, yeah. you do not necessarily care about truth a lot. Like, your own <laughs> perception of truth is right. more important. If There was this, like, really interesting chart where they had a like you know uh, surveys of people over time in terms of their perception of economy, how well the economy is doing or mm-hmm. how well they are doing, and the uh, the approval of economy or whatever the economy like you know people thinking that the economy is doing good under Obama, like who also like you know uh, or hard Democrats are much higher than yeah. Republicans. Yeah. But this changes immediately with the election of Donald Trump. And all of a sudden, all the Democrats do not think that the economy is doing well, whereas Republicans start believing that the uh, you know economy is doing much better now. So, like, you know, it's not necessarily a really a function of uh, the, uh, you know, whether or not the economy is actually doing good, but 
who is it like you know on top like do you support this person i, I literally saw a study that showed that even people who are making like business owners who are making financial decisions so you think these are people of concrete economic rationality have to make my money we're under the same uh spell so it's like they literally changed their spending decisions based on completely emotional <laughs> factors that made no sense economically but they do it all the time well, and I also keep thinking about something you said, Sammy, about about what you said about values and if the values haven't really sunk in or that, you know, when push comes to shove, they're not going to be upheld. So I, I just think about the anti-immigrant feeling in Eastern Europe, the anti-Kurdish sentiment in Turkey that when the going gets tough, it's easy for these leader. And obviously in the United States, we've got immigrants, you know, as well that leaders use these groups to rally, you know, so if, if, if this belief in equality and, and all that stuff was really like baked in, then it would be much more difficult to use the other to rally support and I, I don't know i guess it just makes me pessimistic about the good of humanity <laughs> i don't know if how anyone can be pessimistic <laughs> these days <laughs> what is to worry about uh yeah i mean like it just coming from turkey like you know a lot of things are very very familiar how things have started and uh like in other countries particularly people who have seen like you know complete dissolution of democracy and like you know transitioning to close authoritarian regimes i'm sure like you know they can also relate it comes with bits and pieces like it yeah. doesn't like democracy will not just uh in one day like you know collapse and media will talk about all right today democracy has collapsed <laughs> you know uh, breaking news Get like your authoritarian that's, hats on. <laughs> that's not going to happen well okay so let's actually let's turn to turkey and a lot of the rule changes in Turkey, dramatic changes in the law, came after the 2016 coup attempt. You so could say that. So yeah. first of all, was there actually a coup attempt? Yes, there was. And it was just bad. It was bad. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. I think I would date back those changes to the referendum in 2010, uh, where you had a constitutional referendum. And it was, you know, with that change. Uh, what what the, changed? The constitutional referendum. It like, you know, it amended a lot of uh, articles in the constitution and allowed the government to just fill the judiciary with their own like people like it gave way too much power uh to the uh you know ruling party in terms of having like you know just influence over the judiciary so i think with those changes came the you know uh judicial independence uh, the end of judicial independence okay. as we knew it in turkey um, Which has allowed all these other things to happen. It it, it definitely helped. Yeah. Uh, like you know, it was. So easy. what has happened? So, since then. Well, or, I mean, just give it, us a brief rundown of everything, please. All right. So like since back in 1923. Of, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Foundation of the state, please. Right. Uh, well, like you know, after 2010, you know. A lot of people did actually support this constitutional referendum. The liberals, uh, and you know, democratic. And what, what was there? It's just like you know, the whole uh, premise is that like it was portrayed as like framed as a democratic like step uh, 
towards the better. So there were lots of things inside that uh, referendum. Some of them were good, but some of them gave a lot of power okay. to the government uh, in terms of like, you know, f- uh, to whom select for, you know, judicial positions. Okay. So like a lot of intellectuals said, oh, this is a step for a better country. So we should support it. And the main like, you know, f- slogan that they came up with was Yetmezama uh, Evet, not enough, but yes. So that was the thing. So um, say that again. Not enough, but yes. No, so in Turkish. In Turkish, Yetmez ama evet. Okay. So I need to class up this podcast. You know, with, yeah, or this radio show. This with, uh, group of like <laughs> liberal people weren't necessarily like a lot of people, not very influential, but they just completely dominated the rhetoric over this, uh, you know, referendum. So a lot of people have now, like, after supporting that change, now realized that, you know, those changes were not for uh, the better. Mm-hmm. It was just, like, good uh, tactic by the government to paint these changes as, like, you know, democratic reforms. So it turns out to be, you know, uh, not really the case. That wasn't what, uh, you know, the government was trying to do. Uh, so the judicia- judiciary became more, in- like, dependent on mm-hmm. uh, the government. So if he like you know then in 2013 you have uh, Gizi Park protests which significantly threatened the legitimacy of the government and, and what what sparked those well a lot of things uh like the immediate reason was that you know there were people uh who were protesting against this construction project in the middle of Taksim Square in Istanbul which is the main square which would be uh like you know redoing of these old barracks that existed there and it's now a like you know a green space. Mm. So people, uh, so like building if Trump built a Trump Tower in Central Park. Uh, well, kind of, yeah, like <laughs> or anything, you know, yeah. like you know, it, Don't give it was ideas. supposed to be this <laughs> reaction of this historical building, but it would also have like a shopping mall, oh. like you know, conveniently, <laughs> it right. would have restaurants or whatever, you know. So it was definitely some sort of a like a commercial, sure. uh, okay. you know, project. Um, so people like uh, protested against that, and then there was a really violent response by the police officers, and you had those like you know people uh, who had their tents right, like you know as a protest they didn't want to leave, so those tents got like burned down, and then you had some like you know multiple uh, opposition members of parliament, uh, you know, arrived there to defend it, and that's just like how it sparked seeing. Okay the repression coming from the police officers against these people who just like you know wanted that park to like remain you know a park. Su- yeah remain a park and survive i think that view helped a lot garner garnering a lot of support but also like you know y- you have years of this like you know government who is turning a blind eye towards the uh, you know uh, the demands of the people mm-hmm. for a more democratic country and but like, they keep electing them well, yeah, he means uh, it's, well. it's just <laughs> easy for an incumbent with those rules to win an election. Okay, fine. And he has um, I mean, the local elections. He did suffer setbacks. Right, right, right. So. Of course. And in 2016, you have a, a coup attempt, which is illegitimate. And a lot of times, like, you know, Erdogan gets this allegation that this Gulen is this, you know, cleric who is now residing in Pennsylvania was the mastermind behind it. Nobody believes Erdogan about him. Well, I mean, Erdogan, like, you know, made sure that, like, he's not a very uh, credible person when it came to these, uh, like, claims. But in this case, this is actually true. Oh, really? Yes. Golan was behind the coup? Yes. And these <laughs> or, this organization, a very clandestine uh, religious cult, 
which has been trying to infiltrate into the state institutions since 1970s. Are Durham. you ju- are you keeping the the possibility open that you're going to go back to Turkey and get a job someday? <laughs> Is this what's happening on no, my radio like, show? I am not, if you were to like you know tell me who you dislike the most, like you know the current system or like you know uh, this uh, Gulen person, Gulen person. Because he has done uh, so much, like, you know, worse things to this country, to Turkey, than, uh, you know, AKP regime did. He w- um, Wasn't he an ally of the AKP? He was. Oh, That's yes. the thing. Like, you know, they did, uh, they had a marriage of convenience mm. because these people had a lot of manpower in state institutions because they were successful actually in infiltrating, infiltrating. into state very, institutions. And was it as, as as nefarious as the using the word infiltration uh, suggests? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Like the, the reason is there's around. actually a footage of him saying this <laughs> back in from like 1990s that he urges his followers and this was supposedly to be a, like a secret meeting but someone actually like was able to get a footage out of it. He's says you will not identify yourself unless until we have uh infiltrated into every wane of these uh state institutions literally that's what he says uh, and there are so many like intelligence reports everybody knows this all the like you know secular people know this secular people would like you know hate them for right reasons and they created these sham trials against the military uh officials with the help of the akp government with the help of their, uh, you know, uh, presence in the judiciary and uh, the police department, which is centralized in Turkey. Uh, So they were able to literally create false evidence. They created false evidence, digital documents against, uh, like, you know, uh, generals. The chief of staff of Turkish army was put behind bars based on fake evidence. So those, like, you know, sham trials, once their marriage, uh, like, you know, broke down, uh, were retried and they were all acquitted uh, from this. So there are lots of things to talk about, obviously, about uh, Gulenists and uh, you know uh, AKP regime. But 2016 coup attempt was their last attempt to take down the Erdogan government, and they did it via their uh, like you know present presence in the military, which they tried really hard to get in because it was so difficult knowing military as the like you know the secular guardian of uh mm-hmm. you know turkish state it wasn't that easy but they were able to do that like speed uh, up the process with those sham trials because they got rid of a lot of uh lot you know of job generals and stuff so they were able to just like point their own people or just like give promotions to like you know but they were uh, incompetent yes but also like you know their plans were foiled by an insider so like you know a person went to the like you know central intelligence agency uh of turkey like and you know foiled their plan so that's why they had to carry out the military coup not in the middle of the night but like at 10 or 9 p.m that's so, just not how it's done uh well but it how would you plan a coup, Keith? Oh, first of all, right at dusk, you know, <laughs> right after people have eaten dinner, they're a little sleepy, a little slow moving. <laughs> but yeah, in that case, this uh, Gulen movement is definitely behind that uh, thing. I, I okay, wouldn't so obviously let's... go ahead and like you know purge everyone that is somehow related with this uh, movement. But yes. Okay, so so what I mean, so didn't Erdogan ha- wasn't there a constitutional referendum on basically letting him keep being president for a really long time? Like, weren't there constitutional changes after the coup? 
Uh, yes, in 2017, uh, there was a constitutional referendum. In 2018, he became the first, like, you know, elected, uh, no, like, the first president, like, uh, not necessarily, like, you know, Turkey had a president, but president was not the, like, you know, head of state, right? Right, Right. okay, so he abolished the role of prime minister, shrunk the role of parliament. It transitioned to a presidential system, basically, from parliamentary system to presidential system. So this article that I have here says he can now legislate by decree. It's basically uh, the executive order, like, you know, okay. uh, but he use it more, uh, you know, he's more liberal about the use of that. So he uses it less frequently. More frequently. Oh, more he's frequently. more liberal in being illiberal. Yes. <laughs> With the use of that. <laughs> but yeah. Okay, so, so... What do you think are the prospects for, I mean, is this the path? Like, is, is Turkey, what, what's, is there hope that Turkey will move off the path it is currently on? Yes, I am very hopeful. Uh, there are several reasons for being hopeful. I mean, things are not, like, have not been doing well, particularly after the military coup. Erdogan and AKP is worried, like, was worried that, like, with the remnants of these uh, Gulenist people, like, you would have, like, possibly another stuff like attempt like this. So, like, this purge started. But that purge has affected a lot of innocent people, too. Sure. So, but my kind of, like, positive feelings, there are a few reasons. One... The economy is not doing well. Uh, the positive, in the sense, obviously, this is not a positive <laughs> thing. Positive. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you're talking about, like, you know, if this, uh, if the opposition has a chance of winning elections, yeah. In that sense, like, economy not doing well under the AKP, uh, you know, administration is definitely an important concern. So the reason they were able to get all this support was like partly because the economy was not necessarily in crisis, like Mm. it was stable. Now uh, the government is having a lot of difficulty Mm. uh, controlling, uh, like stabilizing the economy. So that is one thing. Another thing is the opposition is a very viable option right now. They have learned from their past mistakes, which is acting really ideologically, like, you know, being ideologically stringent and only focusing on really secular values. In a society like Turkey, like that will not get enough votes okay. uh, to be, uh, you know, to be ruling the country. So the, op- the main opposition party has kind of toned down on their like strictly secular mm-hmm. rhetoric. For instance, the person who won the uh, local elections in Istanbul, the, uh, the new mayor, he has a conservative background, hmm. uh, but he has like secular values and actual secular values. But his rhetoric was, you know, so much more peaceful. It did not focus on like people's lifestyles or anything mm-hmm. like that. It fully focused on this conciliatory like politics and tried to make amends with the people and just pointed at the problems with the administration. Mm-hmm. And he was always like positive. His ag- political agenda was positive. He avoided getting into a uh, conflict with Erdogan and that worked. So er- opposition is way more strategic now. Another thing is they are in alliance. 
the opposition, the, the secular opposition, the main opposition party, uh, you have a nationalist party, and you have a tacit support from uh, the Kurdish party. So the opposition was able to maintain this uh, coalition. Okay. So they won six out of ten biggest uh, metropolitan cities in Turkey in the most recent local elections. Does that's a good sign, a viable opposition. Uh, yeah, except if they actually win, they're going to fall apart, right? I mean, isn't that what happens? Like we're all we're all coming together to get rid of this guy and this party, and well, now we can't. Yeah, that's, we can't yeah, govern yeah, together. It's it's not going to be easy, definitely. <laughs> um, and the third is you are seeing like uh, now elite defections from the uh, ruling party. Mm. Two of like one of two senior members, ex senior members of AKP. One of them have founded the ex-Prime Minister and Foreign Minister Ahmed Davutoglu, his own party. And another, like, you know, previous uh, ex-Prime, uh, Deputy Prime Minister, as well as uh, Foreign Minister, is now founding his own party. It's not necessary that these people will get a lot of uh, votes, but it is important in the sense that it signals at something, yeah. that the party is not really able to, you know, uh, defend its own grounds. Like, mm-hmm. you know, its ranks are not necessarily, you know, as disciplined as it was. And for the conservative voter who cannot just vote for this uh, secular opposition party, these parties will be a viable option, right? They're still uh, coming from a conservative uh, quarters, yet not like they're in opposition to the uh, ruling party. So those who are alienated by the uh, ruling party will have viable conservative options. So those three reasons, mm-hmm. elite defections, viable opposition, and like, you know, economy not doing well, increases the chances uh, for the opposition to like, you know, uh, win maybe the next uh, general election. Really quick before we take a break, hopeful about... Turkey, uh, Turkey, about Poland and Hungary, or not so much? Uh, not so much. Okay. I mean, I, ju- I think, especially Orban, they've been in power in Hungary so long that things are really, really stacked, and it's like there'd have to be almost some kind of like cataclysm politically for there to be big change. Poland, there's been more pushback. Like some of the stuff they've tried to do has been really unpopular. Again, like I mentioned, the abortion law led to huge, massive protests, and the government had to reverse uh, its stance. So I think there, there is a more willingness to push back against the government. It is one benefit for when you come from like a, a culture that has real mistrust of government that the governing party does not have complete confidence of everybody Mm. uh, that they should be in power forever so i have a slightly more hope for poland uh but i wouldn't consider myself to be hopeful in either case interesting okay well we are going to take a quick break here and when we come back we're going to see whether some of these trends can be detected in the good old u.s of a so I'm Professor Floros in the politics classroom with Sami Patan and Keith Simons. And we'll be right back on UIC Radio, where music and culture ignite.
Welcome back to the Politics Classroom on UIC Radio, streaming live for 20 years at radio.uic.edu. I'm Professor Floros, and I can be found on Twitter at Dr. Floros. I am joined in the Politics Classroom today by two political science graduate students, Semi Patan and Keith Simons. And we are now going to transition into talking about the United States. I avoided it as long as I could. (laughs) But here we go. People are worried or express concern about this creeping illiberalism in the United States. A, just generally, is this something that people need to worry about? Oh, yeah, I'd be worried if I were American. Yeah, Which I, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty concerned. <laughs> okay, so yeah, it's here. Well, I, mean, I think just like rule of law being kind of a central plank to <laughs> running a functioning uh, country, I don't see how anyone could have complete confidence in our system right now, mm-hmm. particularly one of the things that I think is sort of most damaging about the way President Trump does things is we've gotten so used to some of this. Remember when he was, I forget if it was still while he was campaigning or he was president by then, he uh, he must have been president. He attacked Judge Curiel from Indiana and said that a Mexican judge right. couldn't be fair against him. Right. This is wildly inappropriate and insanely racist, but <laughs> he did it and suffered no consequences right. whatsoever. And so we've gotten used to the fact that he's constantly attacking judges who are deciding things that affect him. Right. The fact that he just, Judge Amy Berman Jackson, who's making all these uh, decisions for Roger Stone and Michael Flynn, he attacked her several times on Twitter and it's just I mean these are remember when during the Obama administration uh, Bill Clinton met with Loretta Lynch the attorney general on the tarmac people lost their minds it was like a five minute talk and he does this and people are like yeah what are you gonna do he's just expressing himself (laughs) yeah it's kind of crazy okay well let's talk about some of the judicial issues that are currently in the news Today, we got the Illinois listeners will appreciate this. <laughs> Apparently, President Trump has commuted the sentence of former Illinois govern- governor Rod Blagojevich. He was sentenced in February, I think, of 2012 to 14 years in jail for a bunch of things lying to the FBI, extortion. He was basically trying to sell Barack Obama's Senate seat. So when Obama became president, that the seat that he held in the U.S. Senate became open. And apparently Blagojevich was trying to sell it to the highest bidder. Unfortunately, the FBI was uh, had wiretapped his phone office, whatever the case may be. It didn't go so well for Blagojevich. He reported to prison in March of 2012 Federal guidelines say that he could have been eligible for early release in 2024, but it looks like Trump has commuted the sentence, meaning he can leave jail, but he doesn't, it didn't overturn the conviction. It's not a full pardon. It's just saying, okay, time served, now go home. Now, Blagojevich... I don't know. Just other than being on Celebrity Apprentice, <laughs> what is, is there a tie between Blagojevich and President Trump? Only that his wife and his PR team, very Blagojevich's, Blagojevich's quite correctly understood how to lobby him, okay. which is you go on Fox News, Fox in the morning, and you just make your case there. Okay, and it was a very they were very friendly to his. The audience was very friendly to him, uh, and they understood that, first of all, he's going to see you there, and second of all, that 
for we know that Trump with the whole Ukraine thing, this is a guy who hates corruption. Right. I mean, he really <laughs> hates it. And so he goes out of his way to make sure that corruption is handled correctly. Uh, but we, other than Celebrity Apprentice, they have no personal connection except that they're arguably both corrupt politicians. Right. And I think, like, he had his opinion set about uh, this case long way time, bef long time yeah. before his he uh, you know, presidential the, bid. The sentence was... Well, and Jared Kushner apparently floated the idea that this would be a really good way to win Democrats over, like, which is <laughs> what we expect from Jared Kushner's political acumen. Right. He already thought that uh, his sentence was way too long compared to his crime. And I was like, I mean, I think there were 24. Did anyone? So, yeah, he eventually got convicted. Of, I think 17. Uh, no, charges. 18. And 18. has yeah. anyone in the history of the United States tried to sell a state Senate seat? Right. Definitely no, not, not while being not recorded. Not a state Senate seat. A can, like U.S. Senate seat. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, selling state—that's no big deal. <laughs> well, but I that's mean, it's right. a little yeah. bit more high profile. No, but and, and got, he did this while he knew he was under investigation right. already. Yes, and like he, he knew that. He knew he was under oh, investigation because part of this is also, remember, he was essentially extorting the children's hospital <laughs> for campaign funds. I mean, the guy was like literally spending his entire day, how can I be corrupt today? Literally, like, as he said, like cartoonishly bad guy. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay, great. Well, he's getting out of jail, so. And he's from Chicago, so. Yeah. Went to our own. Went to Lane Tech High School. I mm. don't know what that means, but okay. <laughs> so another... <laughs> maybe more high profile judicial issue that is facing the Trump administration and therefore the country is the is issues surrounding Roger Stone. So Roger Stone, a longtime advisor to the president, he had been convicted. He has been convicted of lying to Congress and engaging in a bunch of hijinks to stymie an investigation into whether or not the Trump administration or the Trump campaign had colluded with Russia. So while the Mueller evidence doesn't seem to, it, the, it, sufficient evidence was not found to bring uh, charges about, you know, collusion with Russia of the, uh, against the president for sure. But in the investigation of that, Roger Stone basically got in the way and tried to to help his buddy. So he was he was convicted of I think seven felony counts, and it was decided either today or yesterday he was supposed to be he's supposed to be sentenced on Thursday, February twentieth, and there was some question about whether the judge would postpone the sentencing because his legal team has for the second time tried to argue that he should get a new trial mm -hmm. but she said we'll sentence you but you don't have to show up until i decide whether or not you can have a new trial or not so according to given what he was convicted on the max term in, uh, in jail would be 20 years Initially, the sentencing guidelines, as provided by the previous prosecution, was that he should serve between seven and nine years. Now, this is all up to the judge. She can decide whatever she wants. But these were the, the this was the sentencing recommendation. Well, then President Trump tweets that he thinks this is super unfair and Bill Barr gets involved. 
And he says, we're going to revise our sentencing recommendations. All four prosecutors on the case quit. One even quit the Justice Department completely. And their new sentencing recommendation is three to four years. And there is also speculation that Trump will just pardon him anyway. So for me, for me, what I don't understand is why create all this hubbub? If you're going to pardon him anyway, who cares how long his sentence is? <laughs> right? Uh, so anyhow, so this has led to what well, he has also, Bill Barr, the attorney general, has also intervened. Well, he's now asking federal prosecutors to investigate the folks who were investigating all of these Trump cronies, which sounds a lot like going after your enemies. And this has now led to over 2000 ex department of justice officials, members of Congress and candidates for president who have called on bill Barr to resign. Why should we care (laughs) that the attorney general is overseeing his the the department that he runs why is this a problem i mean one of the there's a bunch of problems i would argue one of the biggest problems though is just this flat contradiction when Barr was uh in front of congress talking about how he would lead the justice department he explicitly said he would follow sentencing recommendations because this is done in order to ensure fairness in order to ensure that things are done the same for all people i i mean i would actually argue that a lot of the times they do charge too much that the that they we have a uh tendency to overcharge people uh which leads to all kinds of problems overcharge or give too long of sentences both okay both and i think that the real big problem here is though it's literally creating the impression because of all the facts uh (laughs) that he is willing to intervene in anything that has trump's personal interests involved because if you are interested in people who've received large sentencing recommendations there are thousands of cases you could be going into so why is roger stone who has been like a boil on American politics since the Nixon era, like the guy that you're sticking your neck out for. And I think you're right, though, in a sense that it is the question is, like, why do any of this if you can just pardon them? Yeah. But I think probably the reason is this is how you build more distrust in the system. Yeah. And I mean, well, how do we know that he isn't looking at other sentencing recommendations, but that it's not as explosive? So the media is not covering. Oh, yeah, abs- absolutely possible. Although this was a good example. The like. People who work in places like the Justice Department are like rural people. Like they tend to be uh, prosecutors in these types. That's why these people resigned from the case and one resigned from the Department of Justice. And I mean, like the Michael Flynn example, which apparently Barr is now looking into again, Michael Flynn pled guilty three different times. He was given every opportunity, <laughs> but his lawyer is clearly making the whole case is about getting a pardon. Is saying, oh, this is all so terrible. I'm being treated unjustly. I didn't know why I was, uh, you know, saying I was guilty. I was confused. I had bad lawyers. It's all nonsense, except they know who their audience is. Right. It's not the American people. It's one American guy named Donald Trump. Okay. And also, like, when it comes to Donald Trump and his administration, like, uh, we not we, we got to be careful in the sense that our whole assumptions about how political institutions work, how presidents behave, may not necessarily apply to him. Like, we're questioning why would he even bother intervening with this, like, interfering with this process if he could just pardon him. Well, 
you know, because we're thinking, oh, you know, he must be, you know, deliberating with his uh, advisors and coming up with a plan. Yes. If we're not thinking that, I think one uh, like one reason why he did that, he saw that on Twitter and just like went Not ahead angry. and typed yeah. something. Oh, this is like you know, uh, too much of a thing. You know, it's. It, but what's, it should in be it, what's in it for Barr? That's always been an interesting question to me because remember Barr gave this interview to ABC where he essentially said, "Hey, President, you're making my job really difficult." Literally, he said he's making it impossible to do my job. <laughs> right. This is a guy who came out of retirement to take this job, right. which is not a job a lot of people wanted. So I think it's number one. Barr is a extreme believer in the unitary executive and protecting the presidency. So I think that's part of what he's doing is that he's trying to protect the institution. Doesn't want it to be weakened just because we happen to have Trump in the position. But I also think that he is. I mean, but isn't Trump like accumulating power to himself? Yes. I mean, how how is how is I, was there any threat that the executive would be weakened? Well, no. I th- so I, I think, for example, like even something like the impeachment, clearly it's not appropriate uh, what Trump did to withhold aid that's been uh, passed into law for political favors to attack your political opponent. That's clear, but. The Republicans both don't want to weaken their president, but a lot of them are making the case, however disingenuously, but Lindsey Graham, that's his argument too, we don't want to weaken the institution of the presidency. Until a Democrat gets Until into Until another guy gets in we don't like, and then we'll do it all day long. <laughs> but especially because it's like, a lot of the stuff they're doing, like if you're a Lindsey Graham type, you want a muscular foreign policy, that's very difficult to get what you want out of Trump. So you have to go to bat for him for everything else so you can get those things you want. And I like it. Semi said, Trump's not necessarily having, uh, you know, a super complicated plan for how all this plays out. But I do think, like, the people who understand him best are the ones who know how to go on uh, the media he takes in and say the right things because you can cue him up very quickly. There's a Media Matters researcher, Matthew Gertz, who just follows the president and how he tweets in response to Fox News. And a good 50% of his tweets are directly from Fox News. <laughs> and it's amazing, but it's so powerful. Like, And so it's like, yes, Fox News makes him more powerful, but he has made Fox News so yeah. much more powerful than it had ever been. It's yeah. almost unbelievable. Well, and, and the president, who now knows that there's an Article 2 in the Constitution, <laughs> thinks that somehow Article 2 gives him the power to do anything that he wants how accurate a read of article two is that do you think i'm gonna argue he hasn't read article (laughs) two okay Uh, but as an argument it's weak but i mean this is the some of the stuff that like obama was criticized for by a lot of republicans when he did the daca program and said i'm going to use my prosecutorial discretion to not go after these uh, populations and people said this was executive overreach but at this point literally he's taking money for the defense department to use for other <laughs> no. reasons it's pretty blatant but I and mean, that's not executive overreach no that's completely appropriate but there are these ways in which executive power has become very very strong both in terms of like war because congress of course has no interest in being held responsible for our foreign policy uh immigration typically is this way uh but i mean in part this his executive strength is based in part on his partisan strength when you're at 90 percent within the party no one wants to take that risk and even the people like who was it justin amash was the only republican standing against this guy he's no longer a republican he's out of the party like mitt romney I mean, I'll, the RNC chair, his niece, will probably, you know, not eat with him at Thanksgiving after this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the question boils down to who's going to do what. 
you know, even if his interpretation like is wrong or uh, faulty, like what's going to happen? A lot of the things, uh, the powers that uh, you know, the president may or may not have, and the implications, it's all political. You cannot just uh, file a, a you know criminal charge against them. It has to go through the political institutions. And as you just said, when all those political institutions are controlled by Republicans, there's, I don't think there's going to be, you know, there's anything to be done at this point. And like this whole impeachment trial, I think it's also like humanize him, right? You know, you cannot get impeached again. So he, yeah, he could. I mean, he could, yes, but they don't want to investigate. Are they going to do it again? Like, will they actually, what would it take to initiate another impeachment process? I mean, some the, of the next thing he does, some of this, <laughs> will they do it? Some of this stems to me from the directly from the Nixon era. And number one, the decision by the office of legal counsel to claim that a president can't be indicted while in office, which I think is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, but and all, why do people, why does the justice department go along with that? Literally just because somebody wrote it down in the 70s. Uh, but it's also the case that, like, the decision by President Ford to pardon Nixon, yeah. that standard just really, first of all, it helped destroy trust in government. Good job. Uh, but it also just means that, like, the idea of accountability. And Nixon, like, Nixon was just a criminal. Like, he was committing crimes from the Oval Office, and again, recording himself, Blagojevich style. But, like, that kind of blatant disregard for the law with no accountability. And, you know, Nixon was a very strong president in lots of ways. But, like, this idea that you can hold the president accountable essentially requires that the opposite party holds a supermajority in Congress. Mm. And that is very rare to have uh, that we're going to have that happen. And the opposite is much more likely. And I just don't see what would have to happen because he's changed orthodoxy on all kinds of things. The party of free trade is now the party of protectionism and trade wars. Mm -hmm. And, like, I mean, I guess he could, like, completely reverse on abortion. This would cause a few uh, problems. (laughs) Uh, But, like, what really would it take for them to actually break with him? We saw Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney did take, of course, this vote. uh, But he only voted for one of the charges uh, for impeachment, which is ludicrous, because if one is true, then so is the other. Uh, But, like, people act like... Well, and the obstruction of Congress just seems so much more... Yeah. I mean, like, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, Yeah, sending no documents and no witnesses. (laughs) Yeah, not telling your people you will not... Yeah, and then punishing all the people who did answer to Okay, yeah, let's talk about that. So so are these indications... uh, I mean... Nah. Will these issues? <laughs> well, no, I mean, like, will these things outlive Trump? Will Will, will America outlive Trump? Mm. I think it it depends on how his uh, term ends. Yeah. You know, and what what terms? Like, is he going to leave this office? With a sentiment like by the people that, oh, yeah, Trump was our president and he did, uh, you know, the best for us. Like, you know, the support that he has right now, the way he will leave the office, uh, will people still think of the same when he leaves the office? I think that will be really important. And if that's the case, uh, so you really opened a new avenue of what can be done, what is possible. A lot of the things in the beginning of the conversation, right, we talked about how these values apparently are not uh, you know, accepted by a significant portion of this uh, country and that's troubling. And you you know, 
And this time it might come from a, a democratic party too, right? You know, because, you know, these institutions exist. These institutions do their job because of our belief, right? right. Nobody else doing it. We have to act on them. And if we stop doing this, and if we accept, like, you know, new... Uh, boundaries of what is possible and what is acceptable, then that will be the new game until a new crisis, a new juncture happens. So do we just need... So is the response then for Democrats to get more shameless? Uh, see, this uh, this to me is a big question. I, I hope not, but maybe. Uh, I mean, one of the problems I do think is of the people running for president on the Democratic side right now, a lot are talking about all the executive orders they'll issue to get things done. Like Congress does not legislate in any serious, no. meaningful way anymore. So what is a president to do? Like something like immigration. We came somewhat close to immigration reform in the aughts, and this led to absolutely nothing actually happening. And so the Affordable Care Act took all of Obama's political capital to get done. It cost a lot of Repu uh, Democrats their jobs, and it is still controversial and being fought in the courts right now by the administration. So I just think that there's going to be a real temptation, Bloomberg being of the people. I mean, this guy literally talks about how Singapore is a better model than a lot of other Democratic countries because the executive is stronger. And that kind of notion that why are we messing around with this stupid legislature that doesn't know what it's doing, which, to be fair, is filled with a lot of people of questionable talents. Uh, <laughs> but what is to say, like, if we have a president who thinks they know the answers, we're, in a sense, very lucky that Trump doesn't understand how government works. Like, there's a lot he cannot do because he doesn't care how it works and he doesn't not interested in finding out. But, like, Bloomberg scares me because that guy does know. And he knows how to get things done and he's got the money that he's obviously willing to spend to right. get things done. And, like, what is the argument you're going to say, well... This side's going to play by none of the rules. They're not going to consider Merrick Garland right. uh, for a seat. And but you should all play by the rules and just let yourself get whooped every two years at the ballot box. Like that's why there's some Democrats talking about expanding the Supreme Court. Is that a great idea that we expand the Supreme Court every time we get a new president? No. But why not? There are so many parts of the Constitution that I think are stupid. <laughs> like the Electoral College like the U.S. Senate. These are very undemocratic institutions. And like, explicitly so, yeah. Yeah, because the founders didn't trust people. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, well. <laughs> Barely, didn't even trust all white men. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, so where, uh, my least favorite topic of all, the Democratic primary. Mm. Well, that's not over yet? <laughs> <laughs> we have our oh so this is actually this is a serious question that i wanted to ask you guys not because all these yeah, other finally. questions have been <laughs> yeah really um, inconsequential nevada is a caucus state Ugh, yes and the caucus is on saturday some of it but they've started early voting for a caucus and my understanding of the early voting for the caucus is basically rank Yes. Choice like, voting. Cause, right, because they can't actually change their votes, so right. they have to put them both down. Right. So do you... Okay, so I asked Professor Chris Mooney this the other uh, week, because I really like ranked choice voting. Apparently yeah. a lot of political scientists do. Do you think that this is a sneaky way to introduce ranked choice voting into... I mean, think about delegate distribution if you did this. 
Yeah. Right? Counted all the first place votes, then all the second place votes. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so, A, I think it's kind of ridiculous that you can early vote for a caucus, although it's much better than having to show up for three hours on a Monday night yes. when you might have other things to do. Fine. But the fact that there's... Yeah, that that the that the that the fix for this is rank choice. I don't know. Like I want it to happen. I mean the my biggest fear with this the Nevada caucus is precisely that I think it was the Washington Post had an article saying that none of the campaigns are convinced that the state party knows what it's doing and that they're not sharing information. They, of course, ditched the app that failed in Iowa, but <laughs> they're not sure how they've replaced it. So it, I just worry that the big story coming out of there is not going to be, ooh, ranked choice voting seems pretty cool. No, of course. It could instead be like, no one knows who won. What do we do? Uh, Pete Buttigieg is sure he won. He's left the state. Uh, Sanders says he won. We'll never know. You know? But I... I, I it, I like your idea. That'd be nice. Well, but I mean, I think, I, I mean, I think it's interesting though, right? You're saying, okay, you can't physically move to a new candidate. So you're going to, we're going to, I don't know. I just like it. I want it. Especially for a primary. It makes so much sense. Yes. Like, we makes, have so many candidates. Yeah, so. It makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense. Well, okay. And so I don't, I'm, I thought, Keith, at least you were you studied American politics, but hopefully you just know this because you pay attention to things and sure. I don't because American politics drives me crazy. Okay, so the delegates for Iowa and New Hampshire at least are it's not winner take all for the primary. But there are some states later on that are winner take all for the primary. Yes. So so you could have someone get enough delegates to get the nomination who never outright won a state so this is the big problem people are worried about right now is that nobody's going to have enough which is a very real risk and something that some people think warren is already hinting towards she keeps saying i'm the unity candidate this that and the other but oh so that she'll sneak in there which i I just i don't think the establishment wants her either uh but i think better than bernie for them for them yes but if that ship may have sailed they may have missed that opportunity because they wanted someone even to the right of her but i just think that the the sort of basic argument here has to be like, what is the best way to pick a nominee, both for the party and hopefully for the country? And this, the way they're doing it right now, because it's proportional, means that also if Bernie, say, ahead keeps his lead right now, mm-hmm. it's going to get really hard for anyone to overtake him. And then if we get to a situation where nobody has enough, Bernie has a lead, and some shenanigans go on, and somebody other than Bernie gets it, yeah, that would be an ideal way to make everyone angry. So that's <laughs> probably what will happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I said this last week, that, that Democrats like Cleveland sports teams have a unique knack for snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Right, like this is their election to lose, and they'll probably do it. There's a great Onion headline that says Democrats somehow managed to lose on primary, and that's exactly <laughs> exactly what they do. <laughs> oh, good God! Okay, so one piece of uh, recent news in the Democratic primary is that Mike Bloomberg has qualified for tomorrow night's debate yeah, good job dnc finally <laughs> okay so yeah so let's Amazing. talk about that so he only under the old debate rules that that weeded out 
your Cory Bookers, your, your Kamala, Kamala Harris's, yeah. your whatever. All the, everybody else, almost. Yeah, you made sure the you know uh, the field of Canada is white enough, right? <laughs> and then you change the rules to let the guy who's paying for everything on his own g- get on the stage. Does he want to be on the debate stage? I mean, that's one of the big questions has been from the other parties. It's like, sure, it's not fair to him being, but if he's literally right now like running ads everywhere and his numbers are shooting up. So if you're the other campaigns, you want to at least to be able to go after him. Right. And boy, does he have a record you can go after. Sure. So if I was another campaign, I would be very, very pleased about this, but I would also complain endlessly about him being allowed. And I don't... Bloomberg, we'll see. I don't know how sharp he is on his feet. Like, he's always been pretty like agile. He's not bad. He's certainly better than say Joe Biden at uh, talking on his feet but I, we haven't seen him against these people and I, it's going to be interesting I saw some video from one of the mayoral debates and it was just him rolling his eyes the entire time the other <laughs> dude was talking yeah. which I thought was amazing and apparently he doesn't do that anymore but um, I, I, I did find that really amazing <laughs> and it might add some much needed levity in into these debates right. yeah I mean I'll definitely closely follow it because the because your vote is on the line here. Yes, yes. I care about the future of American politics because it has like a lot of implications for every other country right. in the world. That is absolutely correct. <laughs> I yeah, should that's... get a vote. But, yeah, you know, for Mike Bloomberg, he had an advantage, you know, when he has all the money he could spend on this thing, but also the advantage of running all these ads that you cannot, like, you know, uh, just keep yourself being exposed to right everybody's heard of him it's just he can control this story the, yeah. he can uh choose whatever he's the doing focus. a much better job than biden did about the yes. the whole ukraine thing like why oh, yeah. did he not that i think that was such a, a missed opportunity, opportunity. Yes. yeah so Absolutely. this will be the like you know uh first uh, medium where he will not have such control right so it might affect his poll numbers which does he is have to show up he doesn't have to show no. up i don't think that would look good on him though no he could show he could just bribe them all to go easier <laughs> you know. i'll make a donation to, to your, your campaign, campaign. <laughs> <laughs> okay great all right so I think that's all we got for today. And I really appreciate Sonny Patan and Keith Simons, who came from his sick bed and his... All the way from Turkey, just for the show. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and who would have been home already if I hadn't made them come on this show today. But I really appreciate you guys coming. I, I appreciate your insight. Next time we do this, we'll have to talk about something less serious because I also enjoy laughing with you guys very much. So let's do it again when nobody is ill. (laughs) And well, if we're going to do the next year is all going to be elections all the time. So that's going to not be fun, but (laughs) that's all I've got for this week. You are listening to professor Floros in the politics classroom on UIC radio where music and culture ignite. Please join me again next Tuesday from three to 5 PM and not sure who the guest is yet, but I'm sure we'll make something happen. That's all I've got for this week. Class dismissed.